Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. Would you please open your Bibles and turn to John chapter 14. Today we're going to look at a, a passage out of John chapter 14. Um, but before we begin, I want to kind of tell a story, break the ice. I'm a little nervous today. This is my first time up here preaching, but uh, I'll tell you a story. The first time I ever got up to te- preach or teach God's Word in front of people, uh, I was in a small church in northern Japan, and I was nervous. I'm nervous today, but I was nervous. And I remember, have you ever been so nervous that you can't really see things around you? You know, it's kind of a, I call it the fog of war. You know, like you, you can see little things. And I couldn't see anything, but I remember my wife. She was sitting right over here. And I got up to preach, I got up to teach, and uh, I started into my sermon. And I noticed that my wife was doing this to me. And I thought, oh, well, okay. I have this problem. I used to have a problem where I was really quiet when I spoke. So I thought, well, maybe I'm overcompensating and I'm too loud. So I lowered my volume a little bit. And uh, I, so I was going on. I looked, and she was doing it again. She was moving her hand like this. So I thought, okay, well, get a little quieter. I, I don't know, maybe I'm too loud. So I went on. I think she finally gave up. And I asked her at the end. I said, was I, was I really that loud? She said, no, the microphone was up here. See, the, the guy that was teaching, the guy who was singing before me, he's about six foot eight, you know, and so the microphone's up here for him. So I get up, and I can't see it because I'm so nervous, but the microphone's about here. And, uh, uh, and so I preached the whole time like that. I didn't notice it until later. But anyway, uh, you know, it really it is amazing what nerves can do. But uh, I want to give you a little context before we start with John chapter 14. Uh, the book of John was written by the Apostle John, of course. Can anyone tell me how many books of the Bible he wrote, John? Trick question. There's five. John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and Revelation. So John wrote five books of the Bible. This book most likely was written around 90 AD while he was on the Isle of Patmos. Um, the book has a twofold purpose, and it's in 20, chapter 20, verse 31. It's believe and live. Uh, but this gospel is kind of different from the other ones. If you look at the book of Matthew, it's really written toward the Jewish mind, and it emphasizes Jesus as the Messiah. There's so much Old Testament scripture in the book of Matthew as opposed to the book of Mark, which is written towards a Roman mind, and it really emphasizes Jesus as a servant. You go to the book of Luke, and it emphasizes, it's written to a, a Greek mind, and it emphasizes kind of the idea of Jesus as the man and God, this, this philosophy that he's both at the same time. But we get to the book of John, and the book of John was written to the whole world, and it emphasizes Jesus and his deity, that he is the Son of God, the great I Am. John emphasizes the number eight in his gospel. Yeah, there's eight sign miracles that John writes about in the book of John. Now, of course, there's many more than eight that were done. In fact, in uh, John 21, 25, and it says, he says, And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself cannot contain the books that should be written. Amen. But we have eight miracles that John records. In chapter 2, John turns, or Jesus turns water into wine. Chapter 4, he heals a nobleman's son. Chapter 5, he heals a lame man. Chapter 6, the beginning of the chapter, he feeds 5,000 with five barley loaves and two small fish. Chapter 6 as well, he walks on water. Chapter 9, he heals a blind man. Chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And in chapter 21, we read the story of the miraculous catch of fish. So not only does, does John write about eight sign miracles, he also has eight I am statements. That he records eight I am statements that Jesus said. And let me, let me clarify that. John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Chapter 8, verse 12, as well as 9, verse 5, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Chapter 10, verse 9, I am the door. Chapter 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. Chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. 
chapter 14, verse 6, which we'll look at this morning. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Chapter 15, verse 5, I am the vine. And then in some various places, chapter 4, chapter 8, he makes the statement, I am that I am. The, the great statement clarifying him as, as the Son of God. But today I want to take a look at this sixth I am statement. So if you have your Bibles open to John chapter 14, I'll start reading in verse 1. John chapter 14, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much for being able to gather in this place, Lord. Thank you for the amazing opportunities that we have here in this country to be a light. Lord, I pray that you bless each and every one of us that are here this morning. Lord, I pray that you're with us and you guide us. But then, Lord, I pray that you're with us over these next few minutes, Lord. Just help me to be a blessing. Help me to get out of my own way, Lord, and help my nerves to go down. And Just help me to share a little bit of what you've put in my heart and how you are the way, the truth, and the life. And then more than that, Lord, that no man comes to the Father but by you. I pray that you're with us, Lord. I pray you guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. So chapter 14, gives, Jesus gives his final discourse. And as we see this, as he's speaking this right here, Judas Iscariot has already left the room, the upper room. And he's, as, as Jesus is saying this, Judas is, is speaking with the, the leaders of the Jewish church and they're coming to, to arrest Jesus. It's this verse and others like it that his disciples are going to take out in just a few, few days, a few weeks, and totally change the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Within this verse are three very distinct Old Testament references that we're going to go over today. So if you don't mind, I don't know if you've ever done a Bible relay before where we go back and forth through the Old Testament, but this is going to be a lot of, much like a Bible relay because God says it so much better than I can ever say it. So we're going to look at these passages, the way, the truth, and the life, and how they connect with, with us, and then we're going to look at what it means. What do we do with it? What is, why does Jesus give us this? Because he's the way, the only way. So let's begin. Jesus Christ, the way. You know, when Jesus tells his disciples that he's the way, it's by no means a new revelation. Throughout his ministry, Jesus, in small parts, reveals himself as the Messiah, the Lamb of God, the Son of God. Uh, what's significant about this verse in particular is the immense amount of Old Testament that's wrapped up into it. Uh, sometimes when people read the Old Testament, they think, well, you know, that's kind of for before Jesus. When Jesus came and he has the New Testament, that's what we should be focusing on now. But what people don't get is the Bible is just it's one book. You can kind of compare it to a mountain. You know, you start in Genesis and Exodus. It's down kind of the base of the mountain. And you can look up. And even in Genesis, you can look up and you can see the cross. It's in there. It's in Genesis. It's in Exodus. It's all through the Bible. But you're on your way up. And then you hit the top. You hit Golgotha. You hit the cross. And when you get to the cross, that's it. That, that's, where we're, that's where we're looking towards. Then you go down the other side and you've got the, the apostles. You've got Paul, the ministry that he has. And then us today. We're on the other side, and we're going down. But it's, it's one book. You know, I went to a seminary. I spent a year and a half in seminary. And I think the most important lesson I ever learned is uh, one of the things that's unnecessary about the Bible. And bear with me for a second. But uh, turn to Malachi chapter 4, please. 
I'm going to show you something, a, a part of the Bible that's really not necessary. Malachi chapter 4, verse 6. If you guys are up on your Old Testament, you know that Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. It gives you a hint for where it's at. Malachi chapter 4 is the last chapter of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4, verse 6 is the last verse of the last chapter of the Old Testament. And if your Bible is like my Bible, maybe it isn't. But in between that, the next page, if you flip to it, maybe your page is blank. Maybe it's got a little divider in there, one little page. That's it. That's the one of the part of the Bible we don't really need. There's no division. It's one book. We don't have to split up the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's one message straight through. So I hope you didn't get too nervous about that one. But that's the only part, by the way. That's the only part that you've got to take out of the Bible. Everything else needs to stay. But uh, the way of God. Jacob sees the way of God in chapter, chapter 8 of Genesis. You don't have to turn to it, but in Genesis chapter 8, verse 12, we read, And he dreamed, and behold, a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. Of this ladder, Charles Spurgeon, a preacher, uh, olden, olden days preacher, uh, he wrote, He saw a ladder, Jacob did, the foot whereof rested on earth, and the top thereof reached to heaven itself. Upon this ladder he saw angels ascending and descending. Now this ladder was Christ. Christ in his, his humanity rested upon the earth. He is bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. But going on, Jesus isn't just the way. He's the way of holiness. If you would turn to Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah chapter 35, verses 8 through 10, we, we read about this way of holiness. Now you remember, Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life. We go back into the Old Testament and we're going to look exactly how he is the way. Isaiah chapter 35, starting in verse 8. And a highway shall be there, and a way. And it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for those. The wayfaring men, though fools, shall not err therein. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast shall go up upon. It shall not be found there. But the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return, and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So notice that the unclean shall not pass over this way. You must be clean to pass over this way. This is what Jesus is telling us. We must be clean to be on the way. To get to Christ, we must be cleansed. That is what he's about to do. A few chapters later, we read about when he dies on the cross. He's dying for our sins. We are unclean people. We have no right, no, no, no need. There's no way for us to go on this way other than through Christ. So he's telling us he is the way. Verse 10, this way is the highway to Mount Zion. The redeemed shall walk there. You know, the, in the Old Testament, there's such an emphasis on the law. The law was given at Mount Sinai. And you know, this, this way does not lead to the law. The law brings death and destruction, and it brings a knowledge of sin. The way takes us to Mount Zion, where there's joy, and, and all sighing and all sorrow will flee away. But there's no mention of here, here's interesting, there's no mention of man finding his own way to Mount Zion. There's only one way to Mount Zion. And that, we're going to talk, touch on that later. And then verse 9, no lion shall be there. There's nothing for us to fear when we're on the way. Of course there's going to be troubles, there's going to be trials, but there's nothing for us to fear because we're on his way. We're on the way to Mount Zion. So he's the way of holiness. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. See, the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy. So can you guess who the ransomed are? Who are the ransomed of the Lord? It's you and I. God paid the ransom for us. So he is the way of holiness, but he continues the way of perfection. 
Psalm 18, verse 30, the way of perfection. As for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a buckler to all those that trust in Him. You see, the way of God is indeed perfect. We cannot simply overlook this statement. By Jesus saying that He is the way, He's putting Himself as this level of perfection. He's a buckler or a shield to all those that trust in Him. Once again, we see the security that only comes through faith in Christ. And I think at this point, something that struck me with this is, is ways. You know, the, the Bible says in the Proverbs that there's many ways that seem right unto a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. Growing up, I grew up in the northeastern part of uh, the United States, and the area is, is uh, nominally Catholic, maybe a little bit of Christian mixed in, but it was very easy to go through your entire, entire childhood and never go to church, never hear anything about the gospel, and that's how it was for me. I can remember one time in my entire childhood going to church. I don't remember the message. I remember we had pretzels, and I remember we played with the felt boards. I can't remember what the story was, but that's all I remember of church. So that was my church experience in the past. I never really met a, a Christian until I moved in with two guys, two guys who said they were Christians, and you know, every now and then they would talk about being Christians. But I could see from, just from where I looked, I was, a, I was an unbeliever, but they weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. And I wasn't trying to judge. I had no idea. But they weren't doing what they were supposed to do. They, were, they would go out there worse than I was. They, you know, they lied. They cheated. Of course, I did as well, but not as bad as those guys. You know? so, so I thought I was doing pretty good. I said, man, these guys are Christians. And I, you know, I'm, I'm in the military. I'm promoting faster than these guys. I'm passing my tests. I'm doing much better than these guys. What's so, what's so big about being a Christian? My life changed when I, I met a young lady. And she made a statement to me. She said, you know, for me, I'm only going to marry a Christian. And it made no sense. I knew two guys who were Christians, and they were terrible people. I'm an all right guy. You know, I have my things going together. I have a path going. And uh, so I, I laughed it off at first, but then I thought, all right, I'm going to show this girl. I'm going to look into this Bible because there can't be anything there. I know these guys. There's, there's obviously nothing that's too important because they're not following it. So I had to start a Genesis, and I had to go all the way through. I knew the stories, but I had, to, I had to learn about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Daniel, uh, Joseph. All these stories that you know, maybe I heard just a little bit, but I never really understood what it meant. So I went all the way through studying, expecting to find that thing that says, see, there's nothing to it. There's no difference between that guy and that guy's way and my way. There's, there's nothing special. But what I soon realized is there is something different. There is a way that seems right, but it doesn't make it right. The end, the end of my way was death, but the end of his way is Mount Zion. So uh, that lady ended up getting married to a Christian, and uh, we have four kids together. So uh, we're, uh, I think we're doing all right. But, uh, so she got her way. But God used my own, my own uh, I don't know what do you call it, my own bitterness or my own lack of faith or my own lack of trust against me, and he ended up reaching me through my own bitterness. So God can use many things. You know, Sometimes God doesn't have a hammer, but he can use an old shoe. And I think that's what he did with me. I'm just an old shoe that he used to, to beat something into me. Um, so he's the way, but he's the way of perfection as well. <clears throat> so we see that Jesus is the way of holiness, the way of perfection. But let's take another look at the next statement. Uh, Jesus is the truth. Psalm 117, verses 1 through 2. The truth of the Lord endures forever. And so I'll read it to you now. Oh, praise the Lord, all ye nations. Praise him, all ye people. For his merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endureth forever. Praise ye the Lord. You see, the Bible says in John 1.1, 1, 1, in, be- in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Christ, the Word of God, the truth of God, endures forever. He- Jesus is eternal. 
He was present with the Father at the beginning of time, and he's right now seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. When a group wants to attack Christianity, one of the first things they often do is attack the, the claim that Jesus was, uh, was God, that his deity. Um, many cults teach that Jesus was a good man, but they're not willing to accept him that he was the very God. Uh, C.S. Lewis, fa- Lewis was a, an author back in the 1930s, 1940s. He wrote a, a book called Mere Christianity. And in the book, he makes this statement. Uh, you either have to accept Jesus. To say that Jesus was a good teacher, you can't say that because of the claims he made. Jesus said he was the son of God. Jesus said that one day he's coming back and he's going to lead his people to Zion. So to say that he's a good teacher, it can't be. He was either a liar, he was either lying about what he said, he was crazy because what he's saying was so far off that people shouldn't believe him, or he was the Lord. We don't have the option to say he's a good teacher because some of the things he was teaching were so contrary to what everyone else believes. We have to make a choice, liar, lunatic, or Lord. So that was, one of the, that was something that was powerful for me. Um, there are even some rabbis that are willing to accept that Jesus is the Messiah, but they're just not willing to believe that Jesus is God. But this whole thing, our Christianity, it's all based on the fact that Jesus, the only per- perfect person ever, came, lived a perfect, sinless life. Then when it was time to die, he took our punishment for us. If we don't believe that, if we don't believe that he was sinless and perfect, the Son of God, the whole thing crumbles. People say, you know, um, just, just do what you want to do, go your own way. And it'll be fine. All roads lead to heaven. But Jesus said, no, there's only one way to heaven, and he is it. So he is the truth of the Lord. The Bible says in Psalm 86, verse 11, walk in the Lord. It says, teach me thy way, O Lord, I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. Teach me thy way, and I will walk in the truth. See, this truth is not the truth of man, but it's the truth of God. Psalm 25, verse 5, ask God to lead us in this truth. God calls us to walk in this truth. Uh, Proverbs 23, 23 tells us to buy the truth and sell it not. I wasn't sure I was going to tell this story, but I'll tell it. Uh, when I first started going out and telling people about the Bible, I, I shared this with my home group the other day, so this is a repeat for them. But when I first went out and started sharing the Bible, I was in northern Japan. And how it worked, it was actually really convenient for us. We would go door to door, knocking on people's doors, and asking them if, if we could share the gospel with them. And it would be, you think it would be difficult because we're in Japan and not a lot of people speak English. You know, the people, there were people living downtown. Uh, but with the license plates that they gave to the Americans, they all had a Y on them. We called them Yankee plates. So we would go around door to door looking for all the Yankee plates. And when we found a Yankee plate, we'd knock on the door. Sometimes they ran us out. You know, sometimes they would entertain us for a little bit and send us. But every now and then they were actually interested. Because you know what? There's people who are searching. There's people who are looking for the truth. They just haven't found it yet. It's our responsibility to take it to them. But we, we ran into a guy one day, and uh, he opened the door, dressed in all black, black boots, black pants, black shirt. He had the music on in the background. That, you know, the, <laughs> the, it's like, oh, man, I don't know if I want to go in this house. But uh, he turned his music down, and then we started engaging in a conversation. And he was actually a, really you know, an inviting kind of guy. And uh, we started talking a little you know, small talk, and then we started discussing religion, those kind of things, kind of get a feel for where he was. And he said, you know, I've been looking for the truth for so many years, he said. I looked into Shintoism and Buddhism. You know, Buddhism is very big in Japan. He said, I looked into that, but that wasn't it. I looked into Hinduism, Baha'ism, uh, Wiccan, being a Wiccan. He said, I don't know. I, I'm looking for the truth. I ha- just haven't found it yet. I said, and my eyes bulge. I'm like, oh, great. Well, let me tell you, Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life. I said, can I tell you a little bit about Jesus? He said, no, nah, I don't want to hear it. I said, but you just said you've been looking for years for the truth, and I'm telling you right now, we have God's word, and he says he is the truth. He said, no. Nah. Not really interested in it. You see, that's the thing. 
The world will let you look for truth. It'll let you go wherever you want. You can go and find all these things in these different religions. And you'll, you may take a little here and a little there. The, world, the, the, the devil will let you do that. But don't let the devil catch you looking to the Bible, looking to Christianity, looking into God's Word. Because it, it can't mix. You, know, you have darkness and you have light, and the two cannot mix. They can't go together. There's no gray area. It's, it's dark or light. So he was okay with looking for the truth in the dark. It was no problem. You know? But he wanted to look for it on his terms, not on God's terms. And that's the problem I think a lot of us have today is we're okay with being, even Christians, we're okay with being Christians on our own terms. But we have to look into the Bible. What does God say? He is the way, the truth, and the life. He has a path for us. He knows what's best for us. It's whether we choose to listen to him or not. So the truth of the Lord endures forever. And we're told to walk in the truth. But Jesus also said that he's the life. Jesus states that he is the life. He makes reference to this life in John chapter 6, verse 35, with the statement, I am the bread of life. References to the life of God are also prevalent throughout the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19 through 20, we learn about choosing life. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 19 through 20, it says, I call heaven and earth to record against you this day that I have set before you life and death and blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life that both thou and thy seed may live, that thou mayest love the Lord thy God and that thou mayest obey his voice and that thou mayest cleave unto him for he is thy life and the length of thy days that thou mayest dwell in the land which the Lord sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give to them. You see, life and death are set before us. And we're told to choose life. And just in case you wanted to ensure this verse is not being taken out of context, if you look in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 16, uh, God tells us to love the Lord and walk in his ways. To walk in his way is to choose life over death. And then verse 20, the Lord is the life. When Jesus tells us he is life, he's once again using Old Testament scripture to fulfill everything he said he was going to fulfill. And he illustrates his deity, his, his, his being as God, the very God. So not only does the Old Testament speak about the choice between life and death, it also commands us to follow the path of life. Psalm 16, verse 11. Thou wilt show me the path of life, in thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. God promises he will show us the path of life. Though the path is narrow, it is never hidden from view. The path of life leads us to his very presence. Proverbs 8.35 Says, tells us that whosoever findeth God findeth life. But in verse 36, he that sinneth against God wrongeth his own soul. His way is the way of holiness, uh, in, but the unclean shall not pass over it. Proverbs 12, 28 also makes reference to the way of life, <coughs> excuse me, way of, right, way of righteousness as being life. In this pathway, there is no death. And one more verse about the life, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 17, the way of life. He is, the way, he is in the way of life that keepeth instructions, but he that refuses reproof erreth. He that is in the way keeps God's instructions. What does that mean? If we're in the way, we're going to listen to God's word and what God's word said. It's not just enough to read it. You know, there's many people, there's many scholars even, who read the Bible, but they read it not with the understanding that we should follow it. They read it as you would read any other textbook. But God tells us, as, as, as his children, we should read it and meditate on it and study it. And with God's help through the Holy Spirit, understand it and hide it in our hearts. So that's how we're supposed to follow his word. It's through his word. <clears throat> follow his word through his word. So how are we supposed to keep these instructions? How are we to ensure that we're on the path of life? It's simple. We have the instruction manual. 
We have everything we need right here. He's given it to us. We have this gift. I mean, you think back there, hundreds of years ago when Bibles weren't available. They used to have a Bible for a town. There'd be one Bible, and it's for, the entire town would have one Bible that they'd read out of. And it was so, such a hot commodity, they'd have to chain it to the pew. It'd be chained to the pew so people wouldn't come and steal it because people wanted it. You read the stories about Wycliffe and Tyndale and these, these Bible translators who took this word and they translated it to distribute it to the masses and how they were persecuted and how they were, they were put to death. And I, these terrible things happened to them because they wanted to get God's word out because the devil knows that this is how we're going to follow him. This is, how, this is the instruction. This is what he's given us. And now we have it. And, so, and you know, today we have it and we take it for granted. It sits on the table. It sits on the bookshelf. And how often do we really dig into it and read it? You know, I, I think today if... Uh, some of the people who lived back in the day and fought for us to have these Bibles, if they were to see how flippant we are about the Bible and how casual we are about how we read it, I think they'd be ashamed. And, you know, shame on us for not doing what we need to do to study God's Word and hide it in our hearts. <clears throat> so, no, so here we go. So there are just a handful of Old Testament, Old Testament statements that are made to, to the life. We could also look at the water and the rock, uh, God sending manna to the Jews to, say, to sustain their lives. But I think the point's clear. You look through the Old Testament, you see these passages. Jesus is the way, and we have so much to talk about him being the way. Jesus is the truth. You can see through the Old Testament him being the truth and what it means to be the truth. Not man's truth, but God's truth. And then Jesus is the life, the only sustainable life. But then we get to the next part. You know, and the first part's fine. Most Christians can handle the first part. It's easy. You know, they're, they're good things. We can look up in the Old Testament. We can see it. But this is really where people start to squirm. What's the next part of the statement? John chapter 14, verse 6. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. It's very exclusive. You know, that's a, you know people say that uh, Christians are narrow-minded. And I always joke around. I say, yeah, we're, we're as narrow-minded as the book. You know, that's as narrow-minded as I am. You know, it's, it tells us what it is. If I was an oncologist and I had the only prescription that could cure your cancer, this is it. You know, I'm the expert in the field. And I can go and I can say, the only way that you're going to survive is if you take this medicine, this medicine, this medicine, this medicine. Would you call me narrow-minded? Would I be a bigot because I'm telling you I know the only way that's going to save you? No. You would, look, you would look at me, you would take my prescription and give it to you. I'm telling you from God's word that he said he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes into the Father but by him. This is it. It's not narrow-minded. It's the truth. Um, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 19, 24 and 25. <clears throat> For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. But this man, because he continueth forever, hath an unchangeable priesthood, speaking of Christ. Wherefore, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession by them. You know, one of the, my, the favorite books I've ever read of all time, and I talk about this a lot, is Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress is one of the, besides the Bible, is one of the highest selling Christian books, and probably one of the highest selling books of all time. It's one of the most read books you know, throughout history, uh, written back in the 1600s. Uh, and what Pilgrim's Progress is, it's an allegory. So it's a picture. It's a story of a guy, he, this man Christian has a dream. And in this dream, he goes to all these different areas. And this, the idea behind the book is it's, it's supposed to be a picture of different struggles that we have in our life. And one of the, the, the most powerful points of this book is when he, he goes to the house of the interpreter. And this man Christian goes into the house of the interpreter, and the, the interpreter shows him all these different pictures. And then the Christian asks the interpreter, what does it mean? So uh, Christian goes into this one room, and he sees this big empty room. And on the room, he can see dust, you know, from, from wall to wall, corner to corner. It's dusty, and it needs to be cleaned. 
So a man comes in. So the, the Christian asked the interpreter, what does this mean? And the interpreter said, wait a minute, watch. So a man comes in with a broom. And he starts to sweep the dust. And he's trying to clean the dust up. But what happens is just as much dust is getting piled up, it's thrown into the air. So all of a sudden, you can see just how dusty this room is. It's not getting clean. The, air, the, the dust is just everywhere. So the man with the broom walks away. And uh, so Christian asked the interpreter, so what does this mean? He said, just, just wait a minute. So the dust settles, and then another one, a, a young maiden comes in with a, a pitcher of water. And she takes the water and pours it on the floor, and the dust is washed away. And so Christian then asks, okay, so tell me, what is the meaning of this? And the interpreter says, I'll tell you the meaning now. This room is your heart. The room is a picture of your heart. Our hearts are sinful. They're dirty. They need to be cleaned. The man with the broom that came in, that's the law. The law shows us our sin, but the law cannot clean us. The law kicks up the dust. And you can see, wow, it's really dirty in here. There's something wrong with me. But the law is not effective to wipe away the sin. The only thing that cleans our sin away is Christ's blood. That's what the water was. The water comes in and washes it all away. And only then and truly then can we be clean in our hearts. So it's a, it's a great picture for us, and it's something I always think about when you look at, think about the difference of the law. the law. By the law, we have the knowledge of sin. We know we're sinners because the law says we're sinners, but the law can't save us. All the law can do is point us to Christ. You know, in a few, in a few weeks, Pastor, we'll, we'll get into Exodus and into the law. And if you get stuck on just the law, you will never measure up. What should be written above the law and what is written above the law is we need Jesus. We need Jesus because of the first commandment. We need Jesus because of the second commandment, and we can't measure up. We can't measure up to God's word. God's law is still, is still in effect today. If we want to do it on our own, we still have to obey the Ten Commandments. But what we, what we don't understand is we can never do it. You know, it says if you sin once, you, 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 you're it. You've lost it. It only takes one. Every one of us are born with a heart full of sin. We have to understand that we can't do it on our own. Only Christ can do it for us. So Jesus is able to save us to the uttermost to come unto God by him, seeing he ever lived to make intercession for us. These verses in Hebrews make it clear that Jesus saves us. He is our intercessor. <clears throat> but some may stay, say, well, is he still the only way? John 20, 28 records Thomas' great proclamation, my Lord and my God. Colossians 2, 9 tells us that in Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Matthew 7, 13 and 14 wraps up the entire message in two verses. Narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Uh, many times, as I said, Christians are accused of being too narrow. Uh, they're accused of intolerance and would even so go far to say we're unloving. But I can tell you there's nothing more loving than the truth. The word of God is truth. That's what we've just learned. Jesus Christ is the truth. <clears throat> it would be unloving for us not to tell people this message. You know, a, a few years ago, well, before I begin, uh, this message that I'm telling you now, it's, it, it's a shocking message. It's one that some people don't want to hear. We can talk about all the good things. We can talk about the blessings, the, you know, the things that God gives us. But when we start getting into this and people start getting offended, that's when people start to back away. But the message is shocking. But what did Jesus say? In Matthew chapter 10, Matthew said, or in the book of Matthew, it's recorded, I came not to bring peace, but a sword. Jesus' message is divisive. Unfortunately, that's the truth. Because there is no, you, can't, you can't put the two together. There's people who are going to believe, and there's people who are not going to believe. And it's going to divide. And unfortunately, in the, in the passage there in Matthew, it said it's going to divide son from father and daughter from wife or daughter from mother. It, and it's, it's not a figurative thing, but what he's saying is there are people who are going to believe and there are people who are not going to believe, and it's going to cause a division, and it's not going to be peaceful. We think about the early church and the persecution that they went through. You know, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, 
It says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But what we see every time, especially Paul and then on, whenever a gospel is taken into a city, whether it be Lystra or Lyconium, the result is one of two things. And when people really hear the gospel and they take it in, it's either a riot, they're either ran out of town, or it's revival, and the, and the people come to the Lord. There's only two things. It's, it is divisive. It's, it's a divisive message. Uh, several years ago, a group of us, when I was living in northern Japan, we had the opportunity to go to a martyr's memorial in uh, the central part of Japan. Actually, Sendai, which is one of the areas that was hit very, very bad by the tsunami. But in the city of Sendai, you wouldn't think it, but down next to one of the rivers, there was a martyr's memorial. So I started doing a little research. Because for me, when you meet the, living in Japan and being around Japanese people today, the most peaceful, nice, tolerant people you'll ever meet. But what I didn't know was a few centuries ago, it wasn't that way. Um, And I'll give you a little statistics or a little history. Um, On February 5th, 1597, 26 Christian missionaries, including 17 Japanese laymen, three of which were young boys, were ordered to be crucified by Emperor Emperor Taiko Sama. In 1614, a national ban on Christianity was placed. In 1624, 50 Christian missionaries were burned alive. By 1637, it was rumored that there were only five missionaries left in all of Japan. Throughout Japan, Christians were being arrested and put to to death for the gospel they preached. But see, this isn't the end of the story. If it ended there, we'd be out of hope. But this isn't the end of the story. What does Isaiah 55 verse 11 say? It says, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. You see, by 1908, there were an estimated 960 Protestant missionaries in Japan. By 1990, a census was conducted, and it was found that there were 1,075,000 Christians in the country. Now, see, this is only 1% of the population, but it's still quite remarkable to consider that the amount of persecution and intolerance that Christians face in Japan, and yet... It's still, it's still there. It hasn't been stamped out. And in fact, uh, when we were in Japan, I met a lady, a Japanese lady. She was a second-generation Christian. Her father was a Christian. Her father was a kamikaze pilot in World War II Japan. So he was in the military, and his job was eventually to get into a plane and fly it into a Japanese, or excuse me, an American or a British ship. So he, he told the story about how he used to do these drills, and they'd, they'd go out and do their drill, they'd do their mission, they would practice their mission, of course, they would come back and land because they were just practicing. But at the end of every day, they would, they would line up in formation, and then the, the lead, the, the squadron commander, would bring a picture of the emperor out. And he put the, the, the picture of the emperor in front, and all the guys were commanded to worship the emperor. And this guy, being a Christian, he couldn't do it. The Bible says it's to worship God alone. So every day, at the end of their, their drills, he'd get beat up because he wasn't worshiping. Fair enough. So this went on for months and months as they prepared. Finally, the order came down for them to do their mission. They were going to go out, and they weren't coming back. They had their ship. They had their targets. So they did one more day of drills, and they went out and practiced their mission. And just like every other time, they came back, lined up in formation, and, uh, you know, had the emperor's picture. And this time, once again, he wouldn't worship the emperor's picture because he has to be faithful. He knows he's going to die for his country, but he will not sacrifice what he has done. So maybe because the, the people were so upset or so worried or so nervous about what is going to happen, they were particularly tense that day, and they beat him badly. They beat him so badly that he was put into the hospital. And he said he woke up the next day, and the nurse there, the Japanese nurse, told him, son, you'll die for your country as a kamikaze pilot, but not today. You're too, you're too sick to go. 
So because he was faithful, he was beat, he was put in the hospital, but he missed the kamikaze mission. So you fast forward a few weeks later, the war ends. It's finished. He doesn't have to die as a kamikaze pilot. And he lives on, has a wife, has a child. Now she is a Christian, second-generation Christian, teaching her kid, children how to, be, how to live and follow the way. So you know, it may not always seem like it's the best thing at the time. It may seem difficult. We may have struggles. We may have trials. But God's always faithful. You know, we, we talk about this so much, how we get so caught up sometimes in our little world. And if he were just to focus on what was going on, the persecution he was facing, it would have been easier for him just to, to worship the, the, the image. But he wouldn't do it. He was faithful, and God rewarded him because of it. We have to understand, he will build his church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You know, the persecution of the early church was very similar to the persecution of Christians, that, the Japanese Christians we discussed. It started out small, mostly by zealous Jews who thought they were doing God's work in eliminating these, these heretics, these Christians, these people who claimed that Jesus was God. Uh, the persecution intensified throughout the first 300 years of the church. If you go and read the church history, the, I mean, the first several hundred years, it, it, was, it, was, it was bad. It was ugly. Christians were being thrown to lions. You hear the stories. You read Fox's Book of Martyrs, what they were doing to Christians. Um, the, the persecution intensified in the year 303. The year 303, Diocletian, the emperor, he came to power, and he decided he was going to wipe Christianity from the Roman Empire. So he put out edicts. He put out an edict that every church that, it w- that was standing would be pulled down. Every piece of scripture they can find would be burnt. Every Christian who would not renounce his faith would be put to death. And his plan was, we're going to wipe them out. They won't be an issue anymore. That was 303. What he found out by 305 was there were more Christians in the Roman Empire at 305 than there were in 303. You know, the church historian Totilian says that the, tr- the blood of the martyr is the seed of the church. These Christians flourished in persecution. Um, so as a result, Diocletian was a, was a failure. And in fact, he was one of the only emperor, one of the few Roman emperors who actually retired. He, uh, he didn't die of natural causes as an empire. He wasn't killed as a, as a Roman emperor. He, he retired. Uh, history says that he retired to a farm and raised cabbages. So that was, that was the end of Diocletian. 2 Corinthians 9.6 says, But this I say, He which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. And he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. That's the application to this. If, if you caught nothing else I said over the last few minutes that I've been up here talking about the Old Testament, the way, the truth, and the life, this is it. If we're sowing sparingly, we'll reap sparingly. But if we sow bountifully, we'll reap bountifully. Who is the last person that you and I have told about Christ? He is it. He's the message. He's the only course that's going to cure people of their cancer. Every one of us is terminal. Every one of us is going to die, and every one of us has an eternal destination. It's one way or the other, and there's only one way. You know, we're a uh, pastor in, in the book of Exodus. He's gonna, I don't want to steal his thunder, but uh, in a few chapters later, we're going to talk about the tabernacle. You know, the tabernacle in the wilderness is one of these kind of, uh, you know, it was never really clear to me. But if you look at it, if we put the emphasis where God puts the emphasis, <clears throat> God, in documenting the creation of the universe, how many chapters does he spend on it? One chapter. Genesis chapter 1, creation of the universe. God spends five chapters in the book of Exodus describing the tabernacle. He spends three more chapters describing the garments that the priest will wear when they're in the tabernacle. Obviously, the tabernacle is important to the Lord. And if you read in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 2, we kind of get, we kind of get the, the answer. Jesus said he is the true tabernacle. He is the true tabernacle. These, all these things that they were doing, they were just pictures, like we said, leading to something else. But this tabernacle, just to give you a brief description, 
it wasn't much to look at. It was a, a plain white wall around the outside. And all you could see on the inside, you could see a structure, but it was covered in the, these skins. And it was just a dark gray-looking color. Nothing too impressive. And the entire outside was bordered by this white, clean, pure fence. And you go all the way around, and there was only one way into the tabernacle. Only one way through. One door. One way. And you get, to the, you get into the tabernacle, and the first thing you come to is the altar of sacrifice. And this is a picture for us. There's only one way into the tabernacle, but there had to be a sacrifice. Not our sacrifice. You know, you read the story of Abraham taking Isaac. Just as he's about to strike him down, God said, no, stop, I'll provide the sacrifice. So many years later, when Jesus came, he was it. He fulfilled it. That was the last dead sacrifice. When Christ died on the cross, that was the end of the sacrificial system. All those sacrifices, they were just a picture that lead us to Christ. When Christ did it, that was the end. You read in Romans chapter 12, it says for us, we're sacrifices as well, but we present ourselves as living sacrifices. We give our lives to God, and then he uses us as he sees fit. That tabernacle, that picture, one way in, <clears throat> one, one, one altar. And then, of course, you have the other articles. You have the laver, you have the basin, you have the showbread, all these things. But they're all points after you get through. You can't get into the door. You can't get in to see God without going through the altar first. I would like to close. We're almost finished. I want to close with one more passage of Scripture. And this is 1 John chapter 4, verses 9-15. through 15. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us, and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time, If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him, and he in us, because he hath given us his his spirit. And if we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. Pastor.